Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Getting In a College Coach Conversation. We are getting just near the end of August, which means so many students are headed back to school and so many seniors are starting to realize, hey, I'm supposed to apply to college this fall. It's going to be this fall. Um, And so there's a lot of, I think, nervous energy, excitement that students have. And for the first time, students are starting to really dive into application platforms and understand what it actually looks like to fill out a college application. They've heard of this thing. It's somewhat abstract conceptually, but there are application platforms out there and students need to be familiar with those. So for today's show, we're going to cover two very popular state-specific application platforms. We've talked about the Common App previously, uh, but we're going to talk about the UC application in our second segment. And here for our first segment, we've got Joy Biscornet, who's going to join us to talk about the Apply Texas application and whether to even use it or not. Uh, Joy, hey, welcome back to the show. It's nice to see you. Hey, Ian. Always good to see you. I've got a little bit of that nervous energy since it's application season. It's an exciting time. Lots to think about. <laughs> it's an exciting time. It's like, have I done enough? Am I doing enough? Do I? Where should I be right now? Um, just a little bit every week, I think would be great. And we want to help people just get started and thinking a little bit about Apply Texas. Um, now, maybe you can just define for everybody what Apply Texas even is. Um, And I might have some follow-up questions for you after that. Sure. Sure. Apply Texas is an application platform specifically for Texas schools. Since you've talked about the common application on previous uh, podcasts, think about Apply Texas as a common application for Texas schools. You can apply to just about every public and private university in Texas and community colleges in Texas using Apply Texas. It's sort of like your one-stop shop if you're applying to predominantly Texas schools. If that, if your application list, if you're staying in state, this might be the best application for you to use. And that one exception, I just want to put it out there right now, is Rice University. Rice is not part of Apply Texas. And Rice uses the common application. That's correct. Like many of its peer institutions. And I think that's kind of an indication that for Rice, they would say, well, we tend to align more often with out-of-state schools that are common app members. And so students that are applying to us are probably also applying to Carnegie Mellon and Duke and Northwestern. And so we want to be in that pool rather than being in the Texas pool. Um, most Texas schools would say, hey, if you're applying to UT, you're probably also applying to AM and you might also be applying to Baylor and maybe UT Dallas is on your list. And so it's a way for them to say, let's make things a little bit easier on our students. Now, who tends to be, uh, what are the characteristics of a student that's going to tend to want to use the Apply Texas application? Yeah. And what are the characteristics of a student that might think Apply Texas could be right for me, but ultimately elects to go with a different application platform? Yeah. So Apply Texas is the ideal application for students who are planning to, who are Texas residents, who are okay. planning to stay in state. And I say Texas residents because that there are so many options that you can stay in state, take make use of the discounted in-state tuition benefit and apply to multiple schools. You don't have to use a separate application for each school. Now, the reason why it's ideal for, I would say, Texas residents versus out-of-state residents who are looking to 
apply to perhaps a couple of Texas universities is because those students who are out-of-state residents are likely applying to other colleges and universities that utilize the common application or perhaps their own application. Um, like, I'm, I'm just going to use one that pops into the top of my head, MIT has its own application. Um, so that would be used regardless. But for students who might just be applying to one or two schools in Texas, in addition to a wealth of other schools outside of state, Applied Texas isn't the most convenient or useful application to use. It might just add one additional application to fill out. Whereas if you're staying in Texas, you know you want to go to Texas school, Tex uh, Applied Texas is the way to go. And I think what what is underlying all of this really great advice is we want to save the work that students have to do, right? We exactly. want you to work smart rather than working hard. And I think sometimes there's this perception from students of, well, I should figure out which application platform the school prefers, which you can never actually know. And technically they don't have a preference. And then figure out like if uh, UT is going to want me to use Apply Texas because they're in Texas, it must be that they prefer Apply Texas. And that's not the case, no. right? We want to put <laughs> you in a position where if you're already doing the Common App for nine schools and UT is, uh, is the 10th school on your list, you don't need to bother opening an Apply Texas account. And that's actually really good news just from this year, right, is that UT and Texas A&M have now become members of the Common Application. Right. And I think that speaks to, much like you were saying with Rice, how Rice sees itself, uh, kind of aligns itself with other universities that are out of state, Carnegie Mellon and schools like that. I think UT and Texas A&M are seeing students from out of state who are looking to apply to those you know, flagship institutions for the state of Texas. So they wanted to make it easier for students who might only be applying to one or two Texas schools to be able to use a single application and not have to add apply Texas to their workload. And that really, I think it's reflected in our experience too. I, I have students that apply to UT and I have students that apply to Texas A&M but they are typically, you know, out-of-state students who are looking only at those institutions. And when I have students that are interested in UT Dallas or um, UT at Arlington, those are typically Texas residents. And so they're in a position where they want to use the Apply Texas application. So we see this just in terms of the preferences from what students are looking for. And, and Joy, I wanted to illustrate something. And for those of you who are checking this um, out on our uh, Facebook page and other social media, you'll be able to see a screen share here. Um, but I just want to illustrate really quickly the, the uh, choosing applications, choosing which institutions you're applying to with the Apply Texas application. You can just see how many schools there are. And so there's this drop down menu that says, which of these schools do you want to apply to? And there are probably, Joy, I don't know, 50 schools here, all these different UT campuses and University of Houston campuses and AM campuses that you can select. And those are just the four year options. There's exactly. also the two-year programs, and it's another 50 schools. And so it definitely makes sense if you're going to be a student who is staying in-state in Texas, this is going to be the right resource for you to use to apply. And I just want to echo something that you had said, Ian, about colleges don't have a preference mm. for the application that you use. So yeah. it's really in students' best interests as they're narrowing down their college list at this time of year to look and see where their co those colleges are located. If your list is predominantly Texas schools, then you're likely to use Apply Texas. If your list of schools is predominantly out of state, then you're likely to use the Common App or another application platform. Um, and not have to use Apply Texas. So it really is what's going to make the workload lighter for a student. Any any uh, yeah. college that chooses the common application equally accepts it over its own. So UT and A&M don't have a preference. That's right. And I think some students will say, well, why don't I just have all these applications? It's because you got to keep your login straight and you've got to enter in your parents' names multiple times. And you got to, you got all these things that you've got to keep 
accurate. And actually, one thing that I was looking in before we got on the show today was I was very curious how um, the University of Texas handles its activity um, information. So entering in the names of the extracurricular activities and the community service you've done and the employment history that you might have. And their character limits are actually different from what you look at with the Common App. And so if you're getting ready for your Common App and you've got your 50 characters for your position and you've got your 100 characters for the name of the organization and 150 characters for your details, and then you try and go paste that into Apply Texas, you're going to find that you don't have nearly enough space to represent all that information. And so, you know, you might say, you know, it already works really well over here on the Common App. I'm not even going to bother with that Apply Texas stuff. So, I think we've done a good job, Joy, of kind of saying, here's when to use it. Here's when not to use it. But let's say we have a student that is using Applied Texas. What are some things that they should be aware of in terms of how that application platform functions? Are there kind of best practices or tips that students should be aware of? And is there anything new this year uh, that we might not have talked about in the past? So what I've learned in in navigating the Applied Texas app is that it's it's a little laborious, <laughs> I guess, to get through it. It's yeah. not as um, intuitive, I would say, as the Common App. There are a lot of drop downs that you have to go through, a lot of data entry before yeah. you even feel like you're in the application. So students, and you have to go in your login screen, you have to first choose, like you were showing before, the different colleges that you want to apply to. In that My Profile, where you're looking, you need to add different colleges before you can start the the answering the questions for the individual colleges. That's right. So you've got your profile, which is your basic info. And, and fortunately, they have blocked out my social security number here, which is good. That's I don't want to broadcast that all across <laughs> our listeners. Um, but you fill out your profile. You have to do that before you can even a- enter a school. And that's just your basic background information. You know, where do you live? Um, what's your citizenship status, et cetera. And then you can start your new application and you can see, Joy, I've already put AM, UT, and Baylor on this space. I agree. It is laborious. Um, it does feel like you're clicking a lot of stuff. Clunky is another word that I might use, although I think it's a little bit more smooth than it has been in past years. And I was able to kind of flow through things as I was putting information in pretty easily uh, over the course of the time today. But but as you said, once you get that profile and then you click start a new application, and this is misleading because it feels like, why would I start a new application? Isn't Apply Texas the application? What is this little button mean here when it says start a new application? Sure. When you start a new application, this actually gives you access to the individual questions that might be required. So anytime you want to add a college, say you have Texas A&M and you have UT and you have Baylor, but say you want to add University of Dallas. I'm going to go up a little bit there. Okay, cool. Let's add that you would have to add that. That's starting a new application. You're going to ask your application type. So each with each new school that you're adding to the Apply Texas app, you can technically think of it as a new application. So each school, you go through what your application type is, what semester you're choosing, and then what your first choice major is and the deadline that you're applying for. Right. So... This section of the the Apply Texas application is sort of like um, a clearinghouse uh, of where all all the different applications that you are going to submit, um, because you do go through this submission process individually for each school. Now, something that you had said, anything that's new or tips, one thing that I want to remind students is as you go through the application, you might not be filling it out in in one sitting. So remember right. to save your work. As you go through each section, save it. You want to make sure that you're, you're not missing an opportunity and you have to go back and, and redo your work. Something that's new to this year's application is that it's a it's a live application in that if you're, say, in your University of Dallas application and you make any changes, those changes will be 
implemented to all of the other applications that you are currently working on. So say you add, you're applying for financial aid in your, in your University of Dallas application, that will then populate when you save it, it should populate across your other applications. So in, um, it, it should show up in U, UT and A&M and Baylor, things like that. And one thing that I found that's that's really interesting is like these schools are sort of asking similar information, but they're also asking slightly different questions in slightly different ways. And that's their prerogative, right? Because they need to get the information they need in order to make the decisions that they have to make. But you've got to keep an eye out for some of these distinctions. And I think what's interesting, Joy, about Apply Texas is that you kind of have to go in and play around with it before it triggers some of that information. Like, what is the deadline going to be? What is early action? What is regular? Are they rolling? That information is here and it's buried in the application, but you kind of have to go through the process of filling it out. Then when you get into a place like University of Dallas, like we're looking at here, you see some personal statements that need to be filled out. We wouldn't consider these necessarily personal statements so much as as supplemental essays in some respects. Um, You'll also find that there's not really a word limit that's indicated here. What's your guidance for students as they think about filling this stuff out short of entering a bunch of words and seeing when they are cut off by the application system. So sometimes a school will indicate the preferred word limit on um, in their admission website. So I would check on each college's website to see if they give you an indication of what the word limit is or a sense of the length of an effective essay. Um, I also think knowing that the, the long essay um, that's required of many schools at the Apply Texas in the Apply Texas application. They say is somewhere between 500 and 700 words. So these shorter answers shouldn't be as long as the as your college essay itself. That's right. Be balanced in terms of what you're responding to. Think about the space that you need to answer the question to satisfaction. And I think, um, I think yeah. with essays like that. If you get trunk, if it gets truncated, then you'll need to adjust. But I think most schools will give you room for about two hundred fifty to three hundred words to right. to make to to effectively answer the the essay prompt. And if you have to know what the limit is, you know, you can always type, go grab something in Word, grab something that you know is 250 words, paste it in there and see what happens. Does it cut you off or do you have an opportunity to kind of um, continue to add to that? Um, Joy, the last thing that we're kind of looking at here, which I I really like, um, is these color-coded tiles that show you which which applications you've begun. Um, You can see them all. You can also see which ones you've submitted. I have submitted none, of course, because I am in my late thirties and a counselor and not a student, Uh, but then you can see the in-progress application. So there's a lot of good tools here. And I think that, you know, as I've looked through the Apply Texas application, I think I've been won over to some of the features of it, but I still wouldn't recommend it for a student that's mostly applying to Common App schools and also applying to UT Austin and and Texas A&M. is there anything else that you would want to share with students in terms of thinking about Apply Texas as they go through the fall? Um, I would just say, take your time. Um, you know, go through that. Go approach each application as if it's own, if it's its own, because, like you said, certain questions pop up, and really, if they have specific questions about the application, don't hesitate to reach out to the admission office. At, the, at that, for that school. The admission officers are there to answer your questions. Also, do your work now. Don't wait till the deadline. Rushing never uh, results in a quality application. The more work that you can do early in the fall, the, the better you'll feel once deadlines approach. That's right. And I think like picking up on that, it can sometimes be helpful to go look at these applications. As you saw in the screen share, they are ready. So you can go and start investigating what they look like, but take note of the information that needs to be provided in that space and start to keep yourself organized on that front, right? So don't wait until the day before the application is due to jump in and start filling out the application. Let's get familiar with the tools before we create the content, bring it all together, and then you can submit with confidence. Um, Thanks, Joy. This was really uh, helpful. And I'm actually glad to get some exposure to the Apply Texas application because, again, we don't 
we don't interact with it that often except with the you know those Texas students. So I think this has been really good for for those listeners. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. All right. We're going to move out to California after this, uh, just making our way west. We're going to talk about the UC application. So don't go away. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now... Back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We have explored in some depth the Apply Texas application in the first segment of today's show. And we want to turn our attention now to the westernmost state. Well, it's not the westernmost state. It's the big western state, California, the UC application this is probably um, the application that is most popular um, uh, as an alternative to the Common App because it is required. So um, instead of the Apply Texas being an option for students who want to apply to UT and Texas A&M, the UC application is the only option. It's the only game in town if you want to apply to any of the University of California schools. And so it's very important that you understand as listeners what to expect from it. We have one of our UC experts uh, joining us on the show today, Sarah Calvert-Kubram. Hey, Sarah, welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to have you. And the UC application is one of those things where we love as experts to dig our hands in every year and see what's new and different. Um, Let's just start with um, the basics. Why don't you help people to understand the role that the UC application plays in the admissions landscape and just anything that you would want families to know about as they're going in to create their account for the first time? Perfect. Well, first thing, rising seniors, or if you're in California, you probably already started senior year. Um, The application is live. It went live August 1st. So you can get in there. You can start working on it. What I love is that it is one application for all of the University of California systems. So whether you're applying to Merced, Santa Cruz, LA, whatever, it's the same application. Um, It is a different application than if you're applying to private colleges or other states or even the Cal State system in California, but one application can be sent to multiple campuses, no extra essays or anything like that. Um, What I would say is that akin to the common application, there are the areas you might be familiar with. So your demographics, your contact information, there is an activity section, there are an essay section. Um, There's also a section where you tell them which campuses you want to apply to. The thing to know is that you just pay an additional application fee for each campus you apply to. And here you go, Ian's pulling up the application. Um, A lot of this, frankly, is quite similar to the common application and other application platforms. I'd say a big difference that I, well, a few that I want to call out. 
One is that under academic history, all of the classes and grades that you have from high school, from summer classes, you name it, you self-report. So your high school is not submitting the transcript as part of your application. This is where having another person, a family member, a friend, whoever, spot checking for accuracy, sit down and do it with you, double check it is key because let's say you're admitted to UC Santa Barbara, yay, you've paid your deposit next summer, you're college bound, you have to have your high school send a final high school transcript to Santa Barbara, and they're going to check it for accuracy. They're going to see, you know, is Ian the person he says he is? Did he take the classes he said he did? Did his grades um, meet the bill, et cetera? Um, so accuracy is really important here. So they're going to double check that. So self-reported is one, I think, really important thing to note. Um, there are sections for college classes you've taken, for high school classes. You just pay attention to the details. Um, if there's anything kind of unusual or different that you're having a hard time explaining, you'll see, and for those looking in our video, there's an additional information section at the, at the bottom there. That's a great space to use if you're like, huh, let's say I took a online Spanish enrichment class to be more fluent than what I could get at my high school. It wasn't credit bearing. I didn't have a grade. I'm not sure it fits as an activity, but I want to make sure that they know if there's some context or there's a class you really wanted that your high school couldn't offer. You know, if there's something that you want to give context, use that space. Um, and um, Sarah, yeah. one of the things that I think just popped up on the the those who are watching this on our social media who can see the screen share of the actual application, a lot of the op options for adding further information and giving further clarification are not available to you until you actually go through the basics of adding in what is my high school, um, mm -hmm. just giving some of that initial background info that you see doesn't really let you jump around from place to place and just put in information here and there, they want you to go through a more linear process in terms of the application, which is quite a bit different from the Common App. And I just want to express to everyone who might be diving into that UC application for the first time, you're going to find that. You're going to encounter that. So don't get into a position where you're especially concerned about the fact that you can't find some of the things that we're talking about here. It'll often be triggered by the logic created by the user experience team at the UC application, and you'll be able to engage with some of that content. Excellent point. And I tell my students, sit down and kind of do it in order. And it tells you that their help text is actually pretty helpful. It says, no, I you agree. need to go back and do this. <laughs> That's so, right. That's right. Yeah. And I, one other thing, just I want to really underscore that accuracy, because a lot of students think, oh, they don't need to see my transcripts. That's great. You really have to be sure that everything that's reflected on your high school transcript is being entered in to the letter in the same way uh, on the application. And I think one of the places I've seen students that can get into some trouble is if they are guessing about, well, how many units is this class? I'll just put this in or like, you know, changing the title or thinking, well, you know, this is not an AP class, but it's advanced. So I'm going to put advanced even if it's not on the transcript. So you have to put in exactly what it says on your transcript into this space, because they will be checking against that. Um, and if there are errors, then you might have a, a re-review. You might have a re-review triggered and nobody wants that after they've already been admitted to a UC. The other two things I'd say about that is California students are probably familiar with this, but out-of-state ones might not be. Everything for the UCs, you can look on their website. They have what's called the A through G criteria classes that you have to take, which are the minimums to be considered for admission to the UCs. And they also use this to see, have you hit those minimums? And that's another reason why approximating or guessing is not wise. I often tell students who are confused, go talk to your school counselor because um, all California high schools, public or private, have their classes pre-vetted of how which, which A through G criteria they fulfill for both the UCs and the Cal States. So it's wise to kind of go back to the source of the high school and say, eh, they'll know because this is a very common, common piece. Um, I think the other one, just to kind of quickly call out, yeah. if, a student, if a student's working on the Common App and the UC App, the activities and honors set, award section, it, it's different. Um, Quite a bit different, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what I find for students who are working on both the UC app and the Common app is it can be really great to do the UC activity section first. Hmm. Um, and here's why. Um, they combine 
activities, jobs, awards, honors, it's all in one section and you categorize what they are, but you get to list up to 20 total items. Whereas on the common app, it's up to 10 activities and up to five honors. So a maximum in total of 15 things in these categories. So starting with a bigger number for a student who has them feels less stressful. You're not yet thinking about cutting and dicing. The other thing that Ian's showing on the screen right now is when you describe the activities in some of the boxes, you have up to 350 characters. Which feels enormous compared to the comments. Like 350, wow, I could say so much. Yeah, and if you haven't done this, you're not in the weeds yet, you get 150 characters for each item on the Common App. So I just find it is way less stressful for students to start with a UC and then cut, dice, trim for the Common App. So I, I think, think that that, order that's good advice. That's good advice. And I, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I have students do when they're doing their Common App is like, let's start really big and put everything that you think you might need to include, and then we'll trim it down to 150 and make it a little mm-hmm. bit more efficient. Yeah. But, but you don't have to do that as much in this particular space. I, I don't think that means that you're aiming for 350 characters. If you can do a good job of describing your involvement in an activity in 150, go for it. Yeah. You, don't, you don't have to make them read more. Um, what about this? I think we get a lot of questions on this, and I, I have a suspicion you'll answer in a particular way. But how it says, estimate how much time you spend on this activity, but, it, but it's important to be as accurate as possible. And then they hour, ask for hours per week and weeks per year. Mm-hmm. A lot of students get concerned about this. Like, are they going to check? How do they know how much time I've spent? What's your advice to students as they're filling out this section? I've actually recently had students, a athlete and a robotics team member, both angst over this, right? Because yeah. during a competition, you'll have a spike of 30 hours a week and the rest of the year, 10 hours a week. And what do I do? Um, what I tend to do is I tell students to look at their whole year, kind of get a sense of, you know, the ebbs, the flows, maybe do some math, quantify it. But what I tell them is that the essence here is that the Office of Admissions wants to know how big are your commitments? How big is your dedication? How busy are you? It's a different picture if you're a academically thriving student who does nothing outside of the classroom versus a person who does a lot. It also is different to do one activity deeply, like a 20 hour a week job or, you know, a sport that keeps you really busy or whatever it might be. If it's a big time commitment versus an hour a week, these tell different signals and different messages. I would not angst over, is this precisely accurate? Because frankly, that's impossible. (laughs) But I would look at averages. I'd say, okay, there are three weeks out of the year where I do do 30 hours, 20 weeks out of the year, I do three. Let's add it all up, average it, divide it, put it in there. But you're just trying to tell the picture, how busy you are, what is the commitment? And I think that your descriptions can help, right? So if you have the, what did I do? And you're talking about robotics, it's like throughout the year, I work on our basic robot, but then one week out of the year, we have intensive competitions and that requires Mm -hmm. extra time. So that's something that you could put as well. I also want to call attention because you did mention a job, you mentioned sports. There are different categories here and everything is underneath the same umbrella. So we've got awards and honors, we've got educational preparation programs, the traditional extracurricular activities and more. And it's important to know that they're going to ask different questions based on what kind of category you choose. So if you choose work experience, they're going to ask, well, where did you work? And then what's the description of the company or the organization where you worked? What's your job title? What are your job responsibilities? So like Sarah says, it can be quite helpful to do the UC first because there's all this extra information here that might not be captured on the Common App, which treats every single one of those 10 activities the same way in terms of what you provide. Absolutely. Yeah. So I know we have a few minutes, but I'm thinking, should we talk about the essays just really briefly? What do you think? I mean, I'm always game to talk about <laughs> essays. Uh, let's, I, before we do that, I want to talk about the essays, but I just really quickly, let's talk yeah. about campuses and majors, because yeah. I think that there is sometimes some consternation around, especially choosing majors. I'm going to mm-hmm. leave this as Sarah, mm-hmm. I think Joy said in the previous segment, whenever you leave something, make sure you press save. I didn't do that here. Don't be like me. Definitely make sure you press save. But what we're looking at here is every single one of the UC campuses, I've said I'm going to apply to all of them because I'm crazy. Um, but you get a chance to choose a major and choose an alternate major in these spaces. And that's true for every single one of the campuses. I wonder if you just have any broad advice that you would give for families as they're thinking about, especially that alternate major mm-hmm. um, and the relationship that it have should have to that mm-hmm. primary major. 
quick, I'm going to flip the script. You're not crazy. If you are UC bound and want in-state tuition into California, buy all of them. <laughs> all right, great. I'm smart, it turns out. Thanks, Sarah. I appreciate that. <laughs> but no, so what I would say is there are a couple things. Think about what matters to you most. Is it the major or is it the campus? Um, are you bound and determined on being a nursing student or computer science, something that like, I must do this? Well, if that's the case, it can decrease your chance of admission and you're going to have to research that for each campus. But you want to authentically say that major because this is a complicated topic, but you may not be able to trans get into it later once you're at the UC. So I would really think... You know, am I undecided and I'm going to put a major that, yeah, I think this is fine. I might want to do history. Cool. Then put that, put it all the campuses, be open minded that you might change later. But if it's a major that can be hard to get into and that's a different conversation for another day and you sure. know that's your priority, put it. Um, the alternate alternate major um, should also be something that you are authentically interested in. Each UC campus approaches this a little bit differently, but broadly speaking, in some way or another, they're going to be looking at, can they admit you to the campus and can they admit you to the major <laughs> in some way or another? They're considering these things. Um, and I think that you want to really reflect more than anything, are these things that you want to do? Also, maybe do some research with the UC campuses to find yeah. out if they could impact your chance of admission and or how flexible and easy is it to change majors once you're at the UC, especially if you are authentically undecided and or very wedded to a specific majors. I think those two extremes, it's worth having a conversation, but it varies from UC campus to UC campus. So you need to do a bit of research at that point. Yeah. I, and, and the research is helpful. The UCs are great. And I think one of the things that you often say to families, uh, Sarah, is pick up the phone. Yeah. call someone at these yeah. admission offices. And I think it's because when you were in admission, you love when people called and they had questions and mm -hmm. you could point them in the right direction uh, for your institutions. And I, I, it's great advice because a lot of people will sit here and say, what, what does it mean if I do this? What do I do? Ask somebody, send an email. We should be really encouraged the students to be the ones doing that in those cases. But there is quite a bit that you can explore um, and learn about if you reach out to people who know. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, we we just plowed right through that. We got to have another session. Uh, on <laughs> I thought this was going to be quick, but of course, nothing is quick when we're talking about the UC application. Um, is there anything else that you want families to know? Any words of encouragement as they dive in and get familiar mm -hmm. with this whole uh, system here? I'm going to stop sharing my screen so we can mm -hmm. look at each other. But uh, anything else you want families to know? This is going to sound cheesy, but I really mean it. When you first log into the UC application the first time, it tells you it's your time to shine. And it might sound cheesy, but it is sincere that the UCs are looking for the positive things, the things that you bring to the table in the application. This is your chance to celebrate your accomplishments, to say what you've done. They're not looking for the negative, and they mean that. Um, as Ian knows, we have colleagues who have worked at UCs, and they said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, they're yeah. really looking at the positive. So when they say it's your time to shine, be proud. Don't be afraid to share your accomplishments. Um, this is your time to kind of showcase that and know that the UCs really do want to see you stand out in that way. Um, and I think own that mindset as you navigate this process. And again, perhaps cheesy, but sincere. That's all right. We got to have a little bit of cheese uh, every now and then because it's a stressful <laughs> process. And so a little bit of that, that good, good vibe kind of stuff is great for all of our listeners. Uh, thanks a lot, Sarah. Yeah, Big help. I appreciate yeah. it. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about the Cal Grant, Cal Grant program. And so if you don't know anything about the Cal Grant, you're going to want to stick around and hear from our finance experts. Don't go away. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit getintocollege.com to learn more. Planning for college? 
Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. It's been a really great show so far. We've talked a little bit about the Apply Texas application and the UC application, and now we get to turn our attention over to college finance. We're going to talk a little bit about something called the Cal Grant. Now, this is a term that I've heard kicked around here and there, but I don't know that I'm fully uh, familiar with the program. And so we've got uh, one of our newer team members. Uh, We're really excited to have her as a part of College Coach, but also, of course, to have her on the radio show here today. Uh, We've got Marina Zaretsky. Hi, Marina. How are you today? I am good. Hi, Ian. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to have you here, and you're going to help school me a little bit on something that I know nothing about, which is often happens in our financial aid uh, segments of the podcast. So let's just start. What is what is a Cal Grant? Why are we talking about it today? Sure. So a Cal Grant is money for college that you do not have to pay back. It is administered by the state of California through the California Student Aid Commission. Now, um, in order to qualify, you do need to complete the FAFSA application, and that's the free application for federal student aid by the March 2nd deadline. That is a very important date to remember. And you need to meet the eligibility and financial requirements, as well as any minimum GPA requirements. So... The March 2nd deadline, that's going to be March 2nd of the student senior year? It is going to be March 2nd for the senior year as well as subsequent years. So for the freshman year, Uh, um, going into college, that's easy to meet because our hope is, of course, that once the FAFSA does open on October 1, as they're applying to colleges, that they will hopefully be able to complete the FAFSA before November 15th. But for subsequent years, students do need to be mindful of the March 2nd deadline every single year. That's a great reminder because I think that, you know, sometimes students figure, okay, I've got this scholarship, I've done it, I'm going to college, and I don't have to worry about this stuff anymore. But those deadlines are recurring, and so we want to make sure that students are hitting that every single year. Now, you mentioned that there are eligibility requirements, there might be some financial requirements, GPA requirements. That's a lot. Uh, And of course, you said it's free money that you don't have to pay back, so I guess it makes sense that there would be some requirements that are tapped into that. What are some of the requirements uh, that that uh, students need to fulfill in order to be eligible. Sure. So again, the March 2nd FAFSA deadline is important. Then you do need to be a U.S. citizen or eligible non-citizen. You need to be a California resident for one year. You do need to attend a qualifying California college, not already have a bachelor's degree, and you do need to demonstrate financial need. So you need to be on a need-based student, and you need to have family income and assets below the minimum levels that will be established by the California Student Commission. Uh, You need to be enrolled in a program leading to an undergraduate degree and enrolled at least half time. So that is important. Subsequent years, if you ever want to be enrolled less than half time, you you do need to be mindful that you will lose the Cal Grant eligibility for that semester if you are enrolled less than six units. Is there any kind of age requirements around the Cal Grant? Is that something that, you know, we typically see that students are getting this out of high school early in their college career, 18, 19, 20, et cetera. Um, But are there non-traditional students who might also be eligible if they hit those other requirements? Yes. So um, there's no age requirement. There's there's actually three types of Cal Grant. There's Cal Grant A, B, and C. So the C is for students who are pursuing a vocational program. So that's more okay. for the non-traditional with no age requirement. 
Gotcha. Okay, that's really interesting. Um, so you mentioned a little bit about the deadlines, uh, March 2nd, and that's something that for students who are going to be applying to college this year, that's easy enough to hit yes. because they'll already have taken care of their FAFSA. But are there any other dates that students need to be aware of as a part of this? Is just that key March 2nd deadline or is there something else to keep an eye out for? So for most schools, it is just the March 2nd deadline. If you are attending a California community college and you miss the March 2nd deadline, they do have a second deadline of September 2nd. So you still have that one more chance to submit all of the documents. Interesting. So that's for somebody who is enrolling in the community college for that particular fall. So the separate September 2nd exactly. deadline would correspond to that enrollment. Um, exactly. Okay, that makes it that makes a lot of sense. All right. This sounds good conceptually. How much money are we talking here? Like, what what is the uh, the value of the Cal Grant for a student that ultimately qualifies for one and, and is selected for one? So this is where it varies. Again, I've mentioned that there's Cal Grant A, Cal Grant B, and Cal Grant C. Yeah. So Cal Grant A is limited to tuition. That is something to be mindful of. And that is where it depends what school you go to. If you go to a community college, the Cal Grant A is actually held in reserve for two years until you transfer to a four-year college. Once okay. you transfer to a four-year college, if you go to California State University, Cal State, the amount is 5742 If you go go to a University of California system, the amount is 12570 If you go to a private school, the amount is 9220 If you go, sorry, if you go to a private nonprofit school, it's 9220 And if you go to a private for-profit school, then it is 8056 okay. That is for Cal A. For Cal Grant B, across all of the schools, it is 1856 And that portion can actually be used for living expenses. So you can kind of use it for other things other than tuition. So when we think about these two grants, um, are they based in any way on merit or are they exclusively tethered to need in terms of who qualifies for the A versus the B uh, Cal grant amount? A lot of it is need-based. Going into the Cal Grant, um, Cal Grant system, for Cal Grant A, the high school GPA must be a 3.0 minimum. And for Cal Grant B, the GPA requirement does need to be a 2.0 minimum. But then at right. that point, once you've kind of qualified for, for Cal Grant as a whole, it kind of depends on your income. Um, in order to qualify for a combination of Cal Grant A plus B at colleges, your income and asset ceilings will be a little bit more restrictive compared to just Cal Grant A. Okay, I gotcha. Now, does that mean that you can qualify as an individual student for both A and B together? Or do you get one or the other? Yes. So the Cal Grant A is going to be a tuition piece and Cal Grant B will be on top of the A as um, living expenses outside of tuition as long as you meet the income and asset ceilings. So, for example, for a household size of two to qualify for Cal Grant A, um, the income needs to be no higher than one hundred and four. Sorry, one hundred four thousand nine hundred. And for... Sorry, for Cal Grant B, the income limit is 49000 And for Cal Grant A, 90400 So the first number that I just mentioned, that's the assets. For Cal Grant A, the asset ceiling is 104900 And for uh, dependent students, it's 90400 So quite a bit higher in terms of the ceiling for Cal Grant A, which is the more yep. generous of the, the two options. But of course, you're mentioning that those grants have to be tethered to certain kinds of expenses. And they yes. can be combined as well. Yes. Um, and, you know, the 3.0 threshold uh, for Cal Grant A, you know, I think when you think about some of the um, the eligibility requirements for admission to the four-year universities where Cal Grant A even is applicable, you have to have higher than a 3.0 to be eligible for the UC. And so it makes sense that it would map onto that. I don't see that as being a particularly onerous requirement for students because they're going to have to map, map uh, satisfy those requirements to be eligible for admission to the UC and the CSU anyway. Now, um, these are these are obviously really great uh, scholarships, but sounds like they're exclusive to people who live in California. 
And we like to think about, you know, the other people in the other states as well. Um, are there other programs like this that people can research, investigate for their particular states of residency that might be applicable applicable for their public and private institutions? So yes, most states uh, will have some type of uh, state grant programs. I would suggest that listeners in other states check out the state's Department of Education website for details, and it will outline requirements and just all the different facts about it. Now, I, this, I would imagine the CalGrad kind of fits into an entire portfolio of financial aid. There might be some other sources as well. How should students think about a CalGrant fitting into other aspects of uh, financial aid, including scholarships, uh, private and from the institutions themselves? Should they just say, I qualify for the Cal Grant and that's it, I'm done? Uh, How would you recommend they think about that? So, of course, with a given cost of schools, CalGrant is just one portion of the overall cost of attendance. Uh, Students may still qualify for the federal Pell Grant. They can still qualify for CalGrant, and they can still qualify for merit scholarships and outside scholarships and, of course, the student loans. So it's just one kind of piece of the puzzle of their financial award package. Great. So keep an eye out there always look for additional funding sources. I think that's what my colleagues over in college finance are always telling me. You don't ever say no to more opportunities to get funding for college. So Marina, thanks so much for coming on the show today. You did great for your first time. Uh, I caused a problem in terms of the audio, (laughs) but you were fantastic. So we'll be very happy to have you back again uh, sometime in the future. Thank you so much. That does it for today's show, everybody. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Next week, we've got uh, Sally back in the hosting chair. We're going to be talking about the first-generation college experience, which is going to be really great. Uh, I think in some ways it connects to what we just talked about with the Cal Grant. We'll also be talking about the Wiley Foundation, and we're going to ask an important question. Why did my school give me money back? So we're looking into some of those financial aid refunds. That sounds fantastic as well. Until next week, uh, good luck with the start of classes this fall. And we are wishing you all the best for this fall and the application season. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.